this is a spotlight series. And what we what we do with the spotlight series is is shed light on a project that we have produced with artists here at Bright Moments. So you'll see on the screens around 100 AI fully on chain imagined faces, and that's what we're going to talk about as the backdrop tonight. But maybe a little bit about you and and kind of just tell your story. We've done we've done this conversation in Mexico City in November. We did it in Tokyo in May, and now we're here in Los Angeles, so we yeah. are around the world. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'll start by thanking Bright Moments. Like, if and, and if anyone, obviously, most people here are familiar with Bright Moments, but the best art experience I've had, and the best art show I've I've seen was Tokyo, and and I've heard the similar things about Mexico City, Berlin. So there's only three left, right? Or the, for Buenos now. Aires, Paris, and Venice. Italy. Yeah, I, I, I could suggest people if you want to experience a really interesting art show. And then also even better, a crypto art show. You just have to do bright moments. It's awesome. And and thank you for saying all those kind things. But yeah, I've been, to jump into me, I've been doing AI for a while now. And it's kind of neat because I started, I think I had my first robots. My two boys are in the crowd, the older boys. And, and I built the robots because they were taking more and more of my time. And I was like liking hanging out with them instead of painting. And I'd realize a week would go by and I had no painting. And I was like, I still want to make paintings, but I want to hang out with my family. So I built these simple robots that would just do most of a painting for me. Then I'd come in and finish it up and, and sell it however I could. And, and that's the, that was like 2005. And, and the first robots were just like, they were printers. And then the big advance that happened was around 2010. I did it for like five years. I just used them to, to help me paint as assistants. Big advances. Like in 2010, I came home from work one day and the robot had dropped the brush and was going through the motions of making a painting. And, but it wasn't making a painting. I was like, that's really dumb. This is just a printer. And, and so I was like, I wanted to, I wanted to actually see what it's doing and then react to what it's doing. And so I added cameras and I said, made, I created this feedback loop where it would make marks, analyze those marks and, and make new marks based on the progress it was making. And this is exactly like this artist, Paul Clay, everyone's heard of Paul Clay, of course, said is he, he described this creative feedback loop says, make a mark, take a step back, make another mark. And with the explosion of generative art right now, I'm just waiting for this to be the next thing is like most generative art right now is you write an algorithm and it goes from A to Z. It's, it does it from start to finish. But I think more interesting is do a little, analyze it, then do a little more. And I think that's going to be the next stage of, of generative art. And with AI Imagined Faces, it was the first time I started getting awards. To give you an idea of what this is, is, is again, Generative Adversarial Network, this is back in 2018, would imagine a face. And it's just going through its memory, it's imagining a face and the robot's looking at a canvas and I painted the canvases black and it was trying to make the black canvases look more like what was going on in its memory. And it was doing that feedback and it was taking a photograph every dozen strokes and, and then it would stop painting as soon as it detected a face. So it was like doing two things. It was using its progress to decide where to put the next strokes and it was also using its progress to decide when to stop painting. I thought that was an interesting algorithm to me because it was generative, but in the moment, like, like, I mean, uh, yeah, it was in the moment and you didn't know what was going to come out. And, and I did it again for the AI imagined faces on chain because I found a way to compress them enough. So that was 2018 and it won this prize called Robot Art first place in, in the world. And it was an international and like beat out teams like at MIT, Carnegie Mellon. So it was like, I was probably the biggest award I, I got definitely at the time and possibly I'll ever get. And then this was, I found a way to get it on chain. And, and the innovation on this one is 
compress it enough that I could burn it onto the Ethereum blockchain. And uh, that's AI Imagine Faces and, and what we debuted in Tokyo for Bright Moments. So it was an honor to be asked to do that. And it was really cool. Step back a little bit. Like, what about your crypto art journey? Because you've done your own contracts. You've been on Super Rare. Like, how did you get into crypto? Uh, yeah, I guess my first crypto, I can't even find my first crypto project. So I have these robots and I made it so that you could go online and paint with them. And, and like right now, my, my work's called Cloud Painter, but it started off as this thing called Crowd Painter, where like back in 2012, 2000, around then to 2015 for like three or four years, I'd make it that anyone could log into my robots and paint with them. And there would always be a, a picture and there would always be a painting. And I called it Crowd Painter. It was like this crowdsourced, but there was a problem is when you open up a painting robot to the internet, there's a lot of vandalism and a lot of hate speech. And I didn't mind the vandalism if it was crude. Like I didn't mind phalluses. I didn't mind, but I didn't like the hate speeches and lots and lots and lots of swastikas. So I, I worked on algorithms to get rid of the swastikas to detect them before they were made and just like omit them and didn't work. And so I was like, wait a minute, what if people were paying to make these brush strokes? And so I wrote this thing that where you could, to paint, you had to use Bitcoin. And you would pay a little Bitcoin, but not only would you get to paint, you'd own a part of the painting. So when I sold it, that would be your percentage. I thought it was a great idea, but two people besides myself used it. And, and I lost, I don't, I've lost track. I don't even know of like, you know, like it was such a failed art project that I just lost track of it. In a couple of years, Ethereum came around. Uh, I can't even find those transactions anymore. I thought it'd be so cool if I could find those transactions. The lost uh, Pindars. Yeah, sure, sure. But that's how I got into Bitcoin and, and crypto. And I just like crypto. I don't know. Same reason I liked AI. thought it was interesting. It, it solved some problems. And so when I saw Super Rare, I got interested in that. Oh, that's right. I wanted to buy some AI art. And I saw it on Super Rare. And I asked how to buy it. And, and I was getting used. And they were onboarding. And back then, there was like two dozen people in the entire ecosystem. And they're like, hey. And they're like, come be an artist. And I was like, okay, sure. And, th and I, I dropped some stuff on Super, including some of these. So... What about the relationship between digital and physical in your process? Yeah. Okay. I'll jump into that. I sort of, the problem, so in Super, what I did is I took pictures of, I have robot paintings as you're, as I'm describing the, you know, robot chicken brushstroke, make these paintings. And I would take photos of them and put them on Super Rare. And I always felt like an imposter because everyone else, like, you know, Hackatow was doing these things like about crypto art and what crypto art is, you know, Prometheus was this other big artist at the time would always do, you know, Bitcoin themed work and, and Ethereum themed work. And, and they were all digital artists. And I was taking photos of a painting, which was physical and making it digital. And I felt like that was cheating. Like I sort of, so I had that imposter syndrome is I'm not sure I'm a digital artist. Right. And, but I kept on pushing through it anyway. I kept on doing this, but I never felt like I was a digital artist. And, and I, you know, that comes full circle to these, these were so there's three of these that were released on Super Rare, including one that just got accepted into the LACMA. And thanks. Yeah. And when I said that, I was like, wait a minute. I was, I was thank you, everyone. Uh, I was like, oh, that was kind of cool. That is, might be better than that other award I was telling you about. And, oh, but I, but I felt like an imposter because there were physicals and I was like, I'm a digital artist. I'm a crypto artist. And then, so like the story of the five years is like, is I always think of it started off as an AI artist back then. And to be perfectly frank, I was an AI artist trying to use crypto to sell art. And that was it. You know, my use of, of Super Rare was like, how can I sell more canvases? 
but like over five years, it became, you know, and so when you, when you say AI art, you were literally like robots painting can physical canvases. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, but you know, with GANs and so I would classify myself, like, you know, we all classify ourselves and put ourselves in buckets. I would say back then I was an AI artist using crypto to sell art. And then, but it wasn't until this, I was like, you know, these, they're not painted on, on a canvas. These are etched into the Ethereum blockchain. They're 100% on chain. There's no digital file with these. And so like, it was like, you know, it's a transformation from being an AI artist that used crypto to make art. And now I would consider myself a crypto artist that uses AI to make art and, and sort of like a shift. You know, of course I'm both, but I would say I'm more a crypto artist now. And that's the, that's the transformation from physical to digital. And man, is digital better. It's like for so many reasons, you know, least of which, you know, we have Seth in, in bright moments, we had to ship all these canvases of these, which are gorgeous. But, you know, but it was like, think of the logistical, it was a logistical challenge to get the canvases to Tokyo, but we did it and they were beautiful, but the digital is, is always going to be more beautiful. And like the canvases are six inches by six inches and they're really pretty, but these you can put on a billboard and, and they'll, they'll be just as high quality. So, so I, I just, yeah, become someone that likes digital more than physical. So. When did you feel the collectors really started to notice your work? Is it all the way through or were there certain moments where you're like, wow, like. Oh yeah. No, there was a big moment. All right. So when I abandoned the physicals, yeah. So I was always doing, I was always doing physicals, pictures of physicals. And it, it was like, I, I, to repeat, it bothered me. I felt like an imposter in the space. And then I noticed that the, the cool part of AI was not what the robot was painting, but what the robot was thinking about while it was painting. And so I made the BitGans. And, and the BitGans are like the process of the GAN thinking of 8-bit characters. And they look cooler than the, the finished project. I never showed the finished products because the actual... AI thinking of making the finishing product look cooler is a cool animation. We've all seen AI animations. They're really neat. And, and that took off. And I was surprised. It was really weird. And it, I'll talk to my kids, Dante and Hunter, and my boys are here. Remember, we went to Galveston and remember how crazy it was going. And I was like, what's going on? So like, you know, like I did a drop and I just thought it would be like just another drop, but it, it went nuts. It like, you know, went all of a sudden to hundreds of ETH of volume. And I was like, and I feel like that might've been the moment. Th that is the moment I abandoned the physical and went digital. It's kind of funny to bring it up with you right now because I never realized that. So And so this next big shift for Tokyo was fully on chain. Fully on chain, yeah. And how did that stretch you? What what was the struggle like? I I'm torn. I'm not sure fully on chain is that important. Mostly on chain is probably good enough, but fully on chain was fun. And the challenge is is the file size. Cause you know, it's it's really expensive to burn stuff on chain. So I think this was like each of these cost 0.1 ETH to burn on chain. And so, so when you get big collection of a thousand, it can get all of a sudden. What does that mean to burn it on chains? Right, so a typical art project, including a lot, well, a typical NFT has some data, a small amount of data that's recorded directly on the Ethereum blockchain. So you could use a program and read the blockchain and you'll find the data. And then it has a link to an image that's stored somewhere else. And the image will be on IPFS or, or like, you know, it'll be on a private server. There's a lot of places it could be, but you have a link to an image and you have a hash to prove that that's the image. Fully on chain is there's no link to an image. The actual image is burned in the same place as everything else on chain. So if everything disappeared, 
except for the Ethereum blockchain, you would still have these images. And actually there's a function, the very first function in this contract will bring this image out and you can copy and paste that string and put it anywhere and it'll make this image. So that's what 100% on-chain means, nothing external to the blockchain. So, and, and that's why the, you know, 100% on-chain art is kind of, typically it's like ASCII art or like the most famous one would be autoglyphs, right? You know, it's, it's usually like really simple. So the challenge is making something kind of squiggles and curly yeah, squiggles. Exactly. Yeah. You were you're considered an OG AI artist, like before mid journey, before stable diffusion, yeah. before open AI. What do you think of I mean, what do you think of these tools that are so more oh, awesome. consumer friendly? Oh, they're they're awesome. Like oh, they're awesome. Like the story I'm like all this AI is awesome, not just for like art. Like big story I was just telling to spontaneity a moment ago was I need to draw, like AI is just going to change everything. Everyone's been predicting this for a while. And one of the big ones is like anyone that wants, for example, if we all want to write an orchestra, we're going to be able to, like any of us, and I, I don't write music. Anyone like this has already been proven with all those stable diffusion. Anyone want to be in, make beautiful visuals? You can now. And it goes to programming too. Like the story I was telling Spongenuity is we're talking about how to make SVG. And I wanted to make this new thing, SVG, to help me make physicals and and in my mind, I thought it would take two days in Java because, you know, I'm this, I've been programming forever, so I'm stuck in this really old language. And I was like, well, why don't I try Python? And I went on ChatGPT, and an hour and a couple of minutes later, the entire program was written in what I thought would take me two days in Java. And I was like, oh, this is, this is just going to change everyone. I was talking with August at, at Mirage, and he was saying he had his best. He's like, using ChatGPT is like having superpowers. And so like, I don't know, anyone should just start using ChatGPT as soon as possible. So for anything, like need a wedding invitation, write it in ChatGPT. You know, you need anything else, just make things faster. So. What about quantum computing? <laughs> yeah, just, Seth's asking this because one of my things is, fast is so nerdy and this is so. It's a safe place for nerds here. <laughs> it's so good. It's right. All generative art, most generative art relies on random numbers. And like, you know, that's why you get something like Fidenzas and you get a thousand different Fidenzas because it, it, or squiggles, crummy squiggles, 10,000 different squiggles because it gets a random number by using the blockchain and it uses that random number to generate a squiggle. But they're not really random. They're pseudo random. And all the computer scientists here will know what that means. They're, they're for all intents and purposes, are random numbers, but they're not really random. They're deterministic. Like you could get them repeatedly. And so, when it comes to digital art being unique, I think it's, I always think to myself, how do you make it more unique? And I think uh, using a random number that's truly random is that much more unique than using a random number that can be repeated or deterministic or a pseudo random number. And I found out that the only place you can find these random, truly random events are on quantum level in atoms. And, and the only place you can tap into that is on a quantum computer. Well, I, I, that's, I don't, I'm not quantum science. Maybe there's other places to tap into that, but the only place I know how to tap into it is, is a quantum computer. So I use quantum computers to get my random numbers for my AI. And you just went to Amazon to get one or? <laughs> no, I, I, I collabed, I, I had a deal. This is an interest. Uh, I don't know how long the story should be. I had a deal with the uh, owner of this quantum computer company to make one. And then right before we were going to do a drop, they sent me legal work that I had to give 75% of the sales to them. And I could only keep 25. And I was like, well, oh, that wasn't the deal. It was 50-50. 
And, and then they said, and they basically said in kind of, I don't know, I thought kind of unprofessionally, he's like, good luck finding another quantum computer. And then, and then I was like, okay, I'll take that challenge. And I, I looked up a quantum artist and I found a quantum artist down in Austin and I called him and we hit it off. And I was like, how do you get on the quantum computers? And he's like, I work at IBM. And so, and then like that night he was showing me how to do stuff on the IBM quantum computers. And, and I, I felt so cool. Cause I like, you know, all of a sudden I didn't have to share with anyone. And, and I found, you know, I actually did a collab with Russell Huffman, which is the name of this artist. He's a really awesome quantum. He goes really deep into quantum computing and art. And we did a collab and it was, it was fun as opposed to a business arrangement with a company. And, and so that's how I get on the quantum computers. IBM has, you can get on if you're an academic at some institutions. And I shouldn't say this, I have an account and, and they haven't canceled it yet. So I keep on getting on there. And, and Russell tells me as long as I don't use too much computing power, they'll never notice. So I jump on, on the weekends and then jump off. You get really random on the weekends. Yeah, totally. yeah. <laughs> totally. It's just quick, quick, just give me a bunch of random numbers. I need them fast. And then, yeah. So that's how I got on them. And, 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 I, and, and like, weird thing is like, you know, for any artist that asks, or like, they always ask like, how do you get into the, I found cold calling other artists. is like the best thing ever because we're all artists and we want to share. And like, if you cold call us, we'll talk to you. So. It was a cold call. And, and I've seen that work so many times in my life. It's just a cold call to get on something. It's a lesson for life. I guess. What about other artists? Like, are you a collector yeah. of other AI art? Like, what inspires you? Yeah, a big collector of AI. I've been a big collector from the beginning. Gosh, I don't know. That's a good question. Nori uh, Harriman, I know. My most recent one is Public Fruit. He had this awesome collection. Did you see that one? Yeah, that was, that was really cool. He's in Berlin. Really? Public fruit. Yeah, he's one of our... Is he coming into bright moments? He's a non, but I've, we've, I've seen him. Maybe in Berlin, maybe not. <laughs> okay, cool. No, that's... Get a lot of QQL outputs, right? Yeah. All right. No, I don't know. It's like strange. It's like when I see... Okay, so I collect a lot and I'm always looking for AI art projects that are awesome and that, that like speak to me. And I don't know what it is. Another awesome one is Nori Harmon. It, and I think a lot of it comes from just seeing effort put into something like with public fruits, latest drop. I know they have been working on it for months and months and months. And you can tell by the quality of it. You know, it's not like, you know, you see some really low effort and you know, immediately it's a low effort AI drop. Someone just did a hundred prompts or a thousand prompts and they, you know, and they got a thousand and it's, and you can just feel it. But like then every so often something pops up and you're like, that's not low effort. And I don't need it to be innovative. I just need it to be like deep. Nori Harmon's Sightseer series is one of my favorites. It's gorgeous. He spent like four months on it, like on it, like constantly. Uh, yeah, stuff like that. Do you like the term post photography? No, <laughs> I do. I don't know. I don't understand it. I, I guess I wish it was more AI. Like it said something about AI, post photography. Why? What do you think about it? As a good, you got you caught me in a. I hate saying negative things about art, and you caught me. It's just a label. I think it helps people frame something that they don't quite understand. I think your point about like, you know, how do you distinguish anybody can make an amazing AI output, but not everyone is a great AI artist, right? So like what distinguishes an AI artist from someone that's doing a, a mid-journey output? See, I think, I, you know, it's almost levels. It's like, I think it's, it'd be awesome. We're all artists. Like, I, I really want to write that awesome song. I always think about it or that, it wouldn't be a song. It would be some kind of tune. 
And I wouldn't want someone to say, oh, you're not a musician. I think anyone that uses these tools is an artist. But how, oh, you mean a great artist? I think it's just a function of how much time you put into it. And you put enough time in enough years, you'll be that great artist. I don't know. That's a tough one. Do you ever get spiritual? I mean, when, when, you're, when you're so deep in these AI algorithms and you're dealing with quantum computing and you're really getting surprised. Maybe, maybe the opposite. Maybe the big thing I wonder is like, okay, so we have these algorithms and, and one of the challenges I've had is I used to describe my algorithms behind my, my robots as like, look, they're taking, they're taking pictures of what they're doing and they're, they're analyzing it. And I've talked to like actually curators that you all have heard of before. And I've tried to describe this process and I'd say, this would be like, you know, five, six years ago, I'd be like, they're taking pictures and they're analyzing and they're saying, Hey, there's, there's, I've actually 24 different minds, AI fighting with each other for what to do next. And they, one of them's looking at contrast and others looking at composition and others looking at color and, 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 and one of them is going to yell the loudest. It's like, whoa, you know, stop. There's no contrast in this image anymore. And it's going to take over. And, and I got this from Marvin Minsky's Society of Minds is like, there's theories that we don't have just one mind, that as humans, we have hundreds of minds, maybe thousands of minds. And in any given situation, a different mind will take over and solve that problem. So angry Pindar Van Arman is different from happy Pindar Van Arman. It's a different algorithm, a different mind running. So I tried to program my robots to do that. And so I tried to describe this to curators like five, six years ago. And I'd be like, yes, it can tell there's no contrast and it, and it can make the aesthetic decision to add more contrast. And I had one curator say, it's a bunch of numbers and it's a bunch of statistics. There's no decisions being made and, and there's no aesthetics to this and it's not being creative. And I'd be like, no, no, it's being creative. That was five, six years ago, totally not accepted. And I'm thinking now I'm going to start re-describing things like that. Because I think now people are more open-minded to accept that AI can be creative. Not be an artist, you know, like you have to be an artist. You have to have intent. You have to have a vision. You have to have like, you're trying to tell people something, but it can be creative. And that's going to be what's going on. And then when someone comes in, this goes full circle back to what you're saying. When someone says, but isn't it just a bunch of numbers? You might say, in statistics, you might say, Maybe the neurons in our head are a bunch of numbers and statistics. And so it's the opposite of spirituality. Are we more like the machines than we like to admit? And, and that's like, I'm open to that possibility. Like when they find the AI is finally solved, and I think it's going to happen very soon, five years, maybe even two years, when general AI comes, we might just realize that we're a lot of statistics. Doesn't make us any less human, but it, 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 it might reveal how our brains work if we can make a copy of it. So... Is that the opposite of spirituality? I think it's pretty spiritual. Okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> We're going to open some questions, but yeah. first, like, help us understand this project. Like, what are we looking at? Okay. I think I heard the word earlier today is pareidolia. Is that the word when you see faces and everything? Pareidolia or pareidolia? Pareidolia. Okay. I just know paranoia. <laughs> pareidolia. Yeah. For, for, these faces, I tried to get it like when a GAN starts working and imagining something, like even the fusion models, when you when we say Yoda and Yoda starts appearing on there. It's just, just what is a GAN? Oh, cool, cool. A GAN is, is two neural networks fighting with each other to make a counterfeit of something. So I have a hard time explaining this. You train a neural networks on the patterns behind a face. And if you train it well enough, it will actually, when you say, hey, make a face, it will, it will try and use those patterns that it has learned to make a new face. But it starts very, very, it starts very, very, like almost in the dark. 
Like it's just like, you know, like pulls out very, very subtle things. You might see your eyebrows first and then maybe it'll see your eyes. And it's trying to put, it's trying to build this face. And when I saw again, work from scratch, from blackness, darkness to a face, and it's like, it's trying to like find the patterns and resolve it and make it more and more like a face. And I did a horrible job describing again, but you know, that's what it's doing. At one point you see the face and you're like, ah, this generative adversarial network has found a face. And so I, on this one, like I was saying, is I would have a camera watching and as soon as it recognized the face, it would stop. Cause I think that's a really interesting moment in our imagination is like when, when we're trying to imagine something and it, it pops into our head, like what is that process? And I actually think it might be a generative adversarial network in our heads. I mean, like we might be building images based on all the images we've seen in the past and the patterns we saw in them. And so that's what I was trying to capture with this. The minimum viable fidelity. Yeah. 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 Like, like if you, if you close your eyes and imagine a face, what's the first thing that pops up or like what, what happens? I, it's sort of, this is like the imagery for me, this comes and then it becomes much more clear. And I see, you know, I actually see a friend's face or something, but it starts off like this in my head. And there's a hundred different ones. Yeah. For this one, there's a, in, in the series, there's a hundred different ones. And uh, yeah. Questions. Anyone has a question? Comments. Here we go. Microphone coming over to you. Hi. Hey. Thank you very much. So how do you strike the balance between growing new skills in areas you're unfamiliar with compared to refining workflows that you know are already, you know, developed and are successful for you? Yeah, that's a, t that's a actually, that's a, a new question. That's good. I, you know, like to, to like, it's strange being a tech artist and focusing like part, a big part of your tech is you have to use the latest tech, right? Or you sort of lose a little relevance. But at the same time, going deeper into tech is kind of cool. And so like, you know, like I need to do something new and I'm building a new robot right now. And I'll tell you about it in a second. But at the same time, I think it's, it's okay for me to keep on going deeper and deeper into GANs. And what's interesting about going deeper into generative adversarial networks is like the imagination of these, of, of, of AI right now, neural nets, a specific kind of neural net is people have moved on from GANs. Like all this stuff is diffusion models now. But when GANs were really hot, I was still working in something called style transfer, a, a previous neural net model. And people were told me style transfer was junk. It's not real AI. GANs are the only real AI. And I was like, no, you know, but what about the feedback loops? You know, like, you know, AI can be anything. But the whole industry just goes with the latest hot model. And right now it's de definitely diffusion models. And which is like, I, this must be a diffusion model, but I'm be not. Be careful when you say hot models. Yeah. All right. So the, the, really <laughs> the really popular thing right now is diffusion models. So I, I struggle with that. Should I move into diffusion models? And, and for what some is, reason, just, what is a diffusion model and how is that different from a GAN? It's, it's, it, it, it works very similar to a GAN in that it tries to, you, you show it a thousand images of something, a, a very, I'll describe a very simple GAN. I'll try it again. You show again, a thousand images of something for this project. I showed it 10,000 faces of celebrities. And I said, find the patterns in that and then show me a face of celebrity. So based on 10,000 faces of celebrities, it looked for a statistical, a, it made a statistical model and then it built its own. Diffusion models work a little different in that it's very similar, but they're tied to keywords. So, you know, when you say Yoda, it's going to look for all the pictures of Yoda it has in its memory database and it's going to bring, oh my gosh, that was a cool one with, all, and it's going to bring Yoda back, but it also does one other cool thing. And this is like, as it's, as it's, it's called diffusion because as it's building this model, going from blackness to Yoda's face, it, it'll do like 10% and it'll come to like something and then it'll blur it. It'll do a diffusion. 
So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and find Yoda, then I'm gonna blur it. And then based on that blurred image, I'm gonna try again. And then it's gonna try and refine it more, then it's gonna blur it. And so it does this pulse and you can, you can control the amount of times it pulses, but each time it blurs it. And they found that's a really cool way of getting really detailed stuff because it, it's just a really cool technique to tie keywords to images Get in a, get a approximation of what the image would look like, then blur it, and then use that blurred image to make another approximation, then blur it again, and and it's magical. It's like it's unbelievable how good it is. I mean, like, you guys can see it all. The new art coming out, it's amazing. Like it's something that comes after diffusion models. I don't know, but I have wondered. You know, I told you earlier. I think GANs might be how we imagine things. I have wondered: Am I wrong? Is it diffusion models or how we imagine things? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, if there is something after diffusion models, it'll be really popular, right? It'll be the next. I can't say it. Hot. <laughs> it'll be the next. It'll be the next hot trend, definitely. So, how was it being in Tokyo with some of the other AI artists? Yeah, that was, I couldn't believe and your right, dad. Yeah, anyone in Tokyo met my father. I tried to get him into crypto. He a sweet story of how he couldn't get into crypto. But he could, he tried again to get into crypto. My father went with me to Tokyo, which was awesome. And and to get back to the AI artist was, I couldn't believe the lineup you got. I was like, wow, that's cool. It was like, I mean, I don't want to listen because I'll, I'll forget one. But I mean, it was like, you know, it was Mario Klingman, Ivano Tal, Claire Silver, Kevin Abash. I'm going to stop listening right there. I know all of them. But if I miss one, I'll hurt someone's feelings. So, but it was, it was like the top. It was, it was really good. Do you compare notes? Like, do you... You learn from each other. Does this happen on Twitter or just through your work? Or we used to more, but now it's just I don't know. We, 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 I think the way we compare notes is like you know try and wow each other and then like be influenced by that. Like I see something awesome that another artist who I was like, oh god, I gotta ask them how I did that. Yeah, we definitely compare notes. I'll ask them how they did stuff. So, Phil, hey, I'm on my way, Phil. I'm on my way. Can you speak as a collector? How does blockchain provenance affect decision making about maybe finding artists early and, you know, showing on chain that you support an artist that maybe isn't widely known yet? And do you have any early picks of emerging artists who you've collected that you've been really proud of your selection or you spotted someone maybe before other people did? Yeah, but it's like a, it's a, it's also a sad story. But oh, about Claire, when I just mentioned Claire Silver. I have her Genesis piece. So I'm always looking for Genesis pieces because then if you buy a Genesis piece, wait, 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 you have her Genesis piece. Yeah. So how did that happen? I just I I could tell she was awesome. How? And I don't know. It's like like I saw her AI work, and it was different. this was when. Two thousand and one. Yeah, and so I think I don't know, but that that's not the sad story. Here's the sad story, and everyone's gonna. I had X copies Genesis piece. Oh. Yeah, and I sold it for a record breaking. You ready for this number? Record breaking, the highest sale of its of at time, $1,000. And people, and for people that, I mean, everyone's in NFTs. I mean, his stuff sells for 3.7 million. So yeah, I had that. But yeah. how did you get it? You just saw it? It was, like, it was cool. <laughs> it, was, it was just cool. Art. I see cool. a lot of things that are cool and they're not Claire or, or X copies, Genesis. Piece. Oh, you know what it is? It isn't just the art. It's also the person, right? It's also the artist is like, how big is the artist into crypto? And like, you know, X copy like embodied crypto. So I was like, you know, this person's nothing but crypto. So it'll be interesting. And so, I, I mean, I still have some early X copies. So yeah, uh, 
Yeah, there's there's weird things. Like I was actually talking to MLO.art recently, and he's a really, really good NFT historian. And like the question came up is, what is a crypto artist? And we talked about it a little bit. And it's like, a crypto artist is interesting because it's, it's kind of going away from it. But for me, a crypto artist is interesting. A crypto artist is like the old model. And there's a lot of books about this. The old model of the traditional art world is there's maybe a dozen artists in America, in New York City. Well, to use New York City because I actually read the stats on this. There's maybe a dozen artists in New York City who's making multi-millions. A dozen, right? Then there's about 90 or 100 that are, and this is, they're, at the, they're at the major galleries. And there's 90 or 100 making a living. Like, you know, that's all they do is art. 100 in New York City. And after that, there's 20,000 artists that, are, are, that have day jobs that are, are making art and trying to get to be those 100. And those 100 are trying to get to be those 12. But, you know, when you think about it, of the 20,000 artists in New York City, 100 are making money. And so the, the crypto promise was like, we're going to switch that. We're going to make it so that there's not 100 making a lot of money and 12 making hundreds of millions or millions. We're going to make it so that there's 20,000 making a living. And, and that's kind of, that was the promise in the early days. We're all going to make a little, we're all going to sell. But it, it's kind of dying. It's, it's turning into traditional art. So we're asking, what is... What is the crypto artist? And, and like, this is going to be controversial, but the things we came up with is independent artists, like indie artists, just like there's indie bands, artists that don't have a studio or, or they have, I have definitely have a studio, but it's me and, and I have assistance. They're not exclusive robots. to a label. Yeah. And then, so like, you know, we thought it's like, you know, these, yeah, not exclusive to a, like a gallery. And so like an independent artist that supports themselves and, and for example, I was talking to Cody about this and Cody is like, I would definitely like, he defines crypto art. He can, he has so much demand. He can get an assistant. Same with me. I could get an assistant and I could produce twice as much art, but there comes a point where like, if I'm making it as well enough that I, I can, that I need an assistant, maybe I should be happy with that and not get that assistant and let another artist like, cause when you take an assistant, you're basically taking an artist off the street and preventing them from becoming uh, as big as you or, or even like, you know, or you're training art. them how to become, you're apprenticing them, you know, never works like that though. Right. But I don't know, maybe, maybe you are, but, but you know, just not it, like, it's the opposite of greed in the space is like, one of the reasons I collect so much is to put the stuff back into the ecosystem. Right. And, and so if you, if you, if you're so successful, you need assistant, maybe be happy with that success. That's a crypto artist. It's, it's changing as little because some people are getting really big. I'll, I'll give, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to give any names, but there is, there's an old artist that like had, like had the world record sale. And, and I think generally the token has collapsed now because it was too big. Yeah, I'm going to stop talking about that, but yeah. So that's what a crypto artist is. Independent, small, supports themselves and supports other people in the, in the ecosystem. And, and, and so when I look for art, I look for crypto artists like that. And like, you know, you got, you got like so many good examples of those. What about regionally or geographically? Like, are you finding new collectors in oh, wow. Asia or India or Africa? When, when we were in Mexico City, it opened my mind because I was thinking to myself, like, I didn't understand Tezos and now Tezos was doing well. And I met a lot of artists from Mexico City and, and South America. And they're like, they could not be happier because for them... I remember one told me $200 a month was their living costs. So there is that 20,000 artists instead of some superstars. We don't see it here in the States, but around the world, there's artists that are just doing awesome because of crypto. So for students, whether it's your sons or my sons or anybody's sons or daughters, going into college, 
what would you recommend they study? Okay, my kids are in the audience right now. I don't know. <laughs> outside of them, outside of my son. <laughs> if you were going into college right now, knowing what you know and knowing all the tools that are out there and it's, you wanted to be an artist, what would you do? It's, 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 not the, it's not the advice everyone wants to hear. Find good art's expensive, right? In my opinion, good art's expensive made. And, and I was just sharing the story earlier. I was in grad school, art school, and I was looking around the room and I saw that everyone else, and I was doing a painting, Everyone else in that class was independently wealthy, except me. I was the only one with a day job and, and my day job supported my art. And, and I realized like, well, that's this. And there were great artists. They were so much better than me. And, and I realized that's what you need for art. You need free time and you need money. And so my bad, my unpopular advice is find something that you can do the least amount of work possible for as much money as possible to support your art. And that could be, that doesn't have to be, you have to be like a doctor to make that much money. It could be like, you have a night shift at a hotel. And since it's a night shift, you can make art all night, you know, for a living. And that, you know, find something to fund the art. Do not try and fund your art with selling art because that kind of held me back for the longest time. If you look at my early work, and one of the reasons I'm concentrating on portraits is portraits, people buy portraits. So would I want to do portraits? Yes, I, I've fallen in love with them, but it, you know, it's, it wasn't the freedom to paint whatever I wanted. It was, I had to follow the market for the first 10 years where I had to like search for things that sold. And if I, yeah, find something to pay for your art, then make whatever art you want. And then after, if you're lucky, it'll hit immediately. If you're unlucky, it'll hit after 20 years. But you know, you're not making art to sell. You're making, yeah, that's, that's the advice. But you know, the reason that's so depressing is everyone wants to hear is like, quit your job and follow your dreams. It'll work out. And I'm not sure it does.